Section 19 of Volume 1E of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Matthew Calvin. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume. Volume 1E, Section 19, Chapter 54, Part 3. But to show how little they were discouraged, the Puritans immediately brought in another bill for the total abolition of episcopacy, though they thought proper to let that bill sleep at present, in expectation of a more favourable opportunity of reviving it. Among other acts of regal executive power, which the Commons were every day assuming, they issued orders for demolishing all images, altars, and crucifixes. The zealous Sir Robert Harley, to whom the execution of these orders was committed, removed all crosses, even out of streets and markets, and, from his abhorrence of that superstitious figure, would not anywhere allow one piece of wood or stone to lie over another at right angles. The Bishop of Ely and the other clergymen were attacked on account of innovations. Cozens, who had long been obnoxious, was exposed to new censures. This clergyman, who was Dean of Peterborough, was extremely zealous for ecclesiastical ceremonies, and so far from permitting the communicants to break the sacramental bread with their fingers, a privilege on which the Puritans strenuously insisted, he would not so much as allow it to be cut with an ordinary household instrument. A consecrated knife must be used to perform that sacred office, and must never afterwards be profaned by any vulgar service. Cozens, likewise, was accused of having said, the king has no more authority in ecclesiastical matters than the boy who rubs my horse's heel. The expression was violent, but it is certain that all those high churchmen, who were so industrious in reducing the laity into submission, were extremely fond of their own privileges and independency, and were desirous of exempting the meter from all subjection to the crown, and were desirous of exempting the meter from all subjection to the crown. A committee was elected by the lower house as a court of inquisition upon the clergy, and was commonly denominated the Committee of Scandalous Ministers. The politicians among the commons were apprised of the great importance of the pulpit for guiding the people. The bigots were enraged against the prelatical clergy, and both of them knew that no established government could be overthrown by strictly observing the principles of justice, equity, or clemency. The proceedings, therefore, of this famous committee, which continued for several years, were cruel and arbitrary, and made great havoc both on the church and the universities. They began with harassing, imprisoning, and molesting the clergy, and ended with sequestrating and ejecting them. In order to join costumely to cruelty, they gave the sufferers the epithet of scandalous, and endeavoured to render them as odious as they were miserable. The greatest vices, however, which they could reproach to a great part of them, were bowing at the name of Jesus, placing the communion table in the east, reading the king's orders for sports on Sunday, and other practices which the established government, both in church and state, had strictly enjoined to them. It may be worth observing that all historians who lived near that age, or, what is perhaps more decisive, all authors who have casually made mention of those public transactions, still represent the civil disorders and convulsions 
as proceeding from religious controversy, and consider the political disputes about power and liberty as entirely subordinate to the other. It is true, had the king been able to support government, and at the same time to abstain from all invasion of national privileges, it seems not probable that the Puritans could have acquired such authority as to overturn the whole constitution. Yet so entire was the subjection into which Charles was now fallen, that, had not the wound been poisoned by the infusion of theological hatred, it must have admitted of an easy remedy. Disuse of Parliament, imprisonments and prosecution of members, ship money and arbitrary administration, these were loudly complained of, but the grievances which tended chiefly to inflame the Parliament and nation, especially the latter, were the surplus, the rails placed about the altar, the bowels exacted on approaching it, the liturgy, the breach of the Sabbath, embroidered copes, lawn sleeves, the use of the ring in marriage, and of the cross in baptism. On account of these were the popular leaders content to throw the government into such violent convulsions, and, to the disgrace of that age and of this island, it must be acknowledged that the disorders in Scotland entirely, and those in England, mostly proceeded from so mean and contemptible an origin. Some persons, partial to the patriots of this age, have ventured to put them in a balance with the most illustrious characters of antiquity, and mentioned the names of Pym, Hamden, Vane, as a just parallel to those of Cato, Brutus, Cassius. Profound capacity, indeed, undaunted courage, excessive enterprise, in these particulars, perhaps, the Roman do not so much surpass the English worthies, but what a difference when the discourse, conduct, conversation, and private as well as public behaviour of both are inspected. Compare only one circumstance and consider its consequences. The leisure of those noble ancients was totally employed in the study of Grecian eloquence and philosophy, in the cultivation of polite letters and civilised society. The whole discourse and language in, of the modern were polluted with mysterious jargon and full of the lowest and most vulgar hypocrisy. The laws, as they stood at present, protected the church, but they exposed the Catholics to the utmost rage of the Puritans, and these unhappy religionists, so obnoxious to the prevailing sect, could not hope to remain long unmolested. The voluntary contribution which they had made, in order to assist the king in his war against the Scottish Covenanters, was inquired into, and represented as the greatest enormity. By an address from the Commons, all officers of that religion were removed from the army, and an application was made to the king for seizing two-thirds of the land of recusants, a proportion which, by law, he was entitled, but which he had always allowed them to possess upon easy compositions. The execution of the severe and bloody laws against priests were insisted upon, and one goodman, a Jesuit, who was found in prison, was condemned to a capital punishment. Charles, however, agreeably to his usual principles, scrupled to sign the warrant for his execution, and the commons expressed great resentment on the occasion. There remains a singular petition of Goodman, begging to be hanged, rather than prove a source of contention between the king and his people. He escaped with his life, but it seems more probable that he was overlooked amidst affairs of greater consequence, than that such unrelenting hatred would be softened by any consideration of his courage and generosity. For some years, Con, a Scotchman, afterwards Rossetti, an Italian, had openly resided at London, and frequented the court, 
as vested with a commission from the Pope. The Queen's zeal and her authority with her husband had been the cause of this imprudence, so offensive to the nation. But the spirit of bigotry now rose too high to permit any longer such indulgences. Hayward, a justice of peace, having been wounded when employed in the exercise of his office, by one James, a Catholic madman, this enormity was ascribed to the popery, not to the frenzy of the assassin, and great alarm seized the nation and parliament. A universal conspiracy of the pacifists was supposed to have taken place, and every man for some days imagined that he had a sword at his throat. Though some persons of family and distinction were still attached to the Catholic superstition, it is certain that the numbers of the sect did not amount to the fortieth part of the nation, and the frequent panics to which men, during this period, were subject on account of the Catholics, were less the effects of fear than of extreme rage and aversion entertained against them. The Queen Mother of France, having been forced into banishment by some court intrigues, had retired into England, and expected shelter, amidst her present distresses, in the dominions of her daughter and son-in-law. But though she behaved in the most inoffensive manner, she was insulted by the populace on account of her religion, and was even threatened with worse treatment. The Earl of Holland, Lieutenant of Middlesex, had ordered a hundred musketeers to guard her, but finding that they embedded the same prejudices with the rest of the countrymen, and were willingly employed in such a service, he laid the case before the House of Peers, for the King's authority was now entirely annihilated. He represented the indignity of the action, that so great a princess, mother to the King of France, and to the Queens of Spain and England, should be affronted by the multitude. He observed the indelible reproach that would fall upon the nation if that unfortunate queen should suffer any violence from the misguided zeal of the people. He urged the sacred rights of hospitality, due to everyone, much more to a person in distress, of so high a rank, with whom the nation was so nearly connected. The peers thought proper to communicate the matter to the commons, whose authority over the people was absolute. The commons agreed to the necessity of protecting the Queen Mother, but at the same time prayed that she might be desired to depart the kingdom, for quieting those jealousies in the hearts of His Majesty's well-affected subjects, occasioned by some ill instruments about that Queen's person, by the flowing of priests and of papists to her house, and by the use and practice of the idolatry of the Mass and exercise of other superstitious services of the Romish Church, to the great scandal of the true religion. Charles, in the former path of his reign, had endeavoured to overcome the intractable and encroaching spirit of the commons, by a perseverance in his own measures, by a stately dignity of behaviour, and by maintaining at the utmost height, and even perhaps switching beyond former precedent, the rights of his prerogative. Finding by experience, however unsuccessful those measures had proved, and observing the low condition to which he was now reduced, he resolved to alter his whole conduct, and to regain the confidence of his people, by pliableness, by concessions, and by a total conformity to their inclinations and prejudices. It may safely be observed that this new extreme into which the king, for want of proper counsel or support, was fallen, became no less dangerous to the constitution, and pernicious to public peace, than the other, in which he had so long, and so unfortunately, prevailed. The pretensions with regard to tonnage and poundage were revived, and with certain assurance of success, by the commons. The levying of these duties as formerly, without consent of Parliament, and even increasing them at pleasure, 
was such an incongruity in a free constitution, where the people by their fundamental privileges cannot be taxed but by their own consent, as could no longer be endured by these jealous patrons of liberty. In the preamble, therefore, to the bill which the commons granted these duties to the king, they took care, in the strongest and most positive terms, to assert their own right of bestowing the gift, and to divest the crown of all independent title of assuming it, and that they might increase, or rather finally fix, the entire dependence and subjection of the king, they voted on these duties only for two months, and afterwards, from time to time, renewed their grant for very short periods. Charles, in order to show that he entertained no intention ever again to separate himself from his parliament, passed this important bill without any scruple or hesitation. With regard to the bill for triennial parliaments, he made a little difficulty. By an old statute, passed during the reign of Edward III, it had been enacted that Parliament should be held once every year, or more frequently if necessary. But as no provision had been made in case of failure, and no precise method pointed out for execution, this statute had been considered merely as a general declaration, and was dispensed with, with at pleasure. The defect was supplied by those vigilant patriots who now assumed the reins of government. It was enacted that, if the Chancellor, who was first bound under severe penalties, failed to issue writs by the 3rd of September in every third year, any twelve or more of the peers should be empowered to exert this authority, in default of the peers, that the sheriffs, mayors, bailiffs, etc., should summon the voters, and in their default, that the voters themselves should meet and proceed to the election of members, in the same manner as if writs had been regularly issued from the Crown. Nor could the Parliament, after it was assembled, be adjourned, prorogued, or dissolved, without their own consent, during the space of fifty days. By this bill, some of the noblest and most valuable prerogatives of the Crown were retrenched, but at the same time, nothing could be more necessary than such a statute, for completing a regular plan of law and liberty. A great reluctance to assemble parliaments must be expected in the King, where these assemblies, as of late, establish it as a maxim to carry their scrutiny into every part of government. During long intermissions of parliament, grievances and abuses, as was found by recent experience, would naturally creep in, and it would become necessary for the King and Council to exert a great discretionary authority, and by acts of state to supply, in every emergence, the legislative power, whose meeting was so uncertain and precarious. Charles, finding that nothing less would satisfy his people and Parliament, at last gave his assent to this bill, which produced so great an invocation in the Constitution. Solemn thanks were presented to him by both houses. Great rejoicings were expressed both in the city and throughout the nation, and mighty professions were everywhere made of gratitude and mutual returns of supply and confidence. The concession of the king, it must be owned, was not entirely voluntary. It was of a nature too important to be voluntary. The sole inference which his partisans were entitled to draw from the submission so frankly made to present necessity was that he had certainly adopted a new plan of government, for the future was resolved, by every indulgence, to acquire the confidence and affections of his people. Charles thought that whatever concessions were made to the public were of little consequence, if no gratifications were bestowed on individuals who had acquired the direction of public councils and determinations. A change of ministers, as well as measures, 
was therefore resolved on. In one day, several new privy councillors were sworn, the Earls of Hertford, Bedford, Essex, Bristol, the Lords Say, Savile, Kimbolton, within a few days after was admitted the Earl of Warwick. All these noblemen were of the popular party, and some of them afterwards, when matters were pushed to extremities by the Commons, proved the greatest support of monarchy. Juxon, Bishop of London, who had never desired the treasurer's staff, now earnestly solicited for leave to resign it, and retired to the care of that turbulent diocese committed to him. The king gave his consent, and it is remarkable that, during all the severe inquiries carried on against the conduct of ministers and prelates, the mild and prudent virtues of this man, who bore both these invidious characters, remained unmolested. It was intended that Bedford, a popular man, of great authority, as well as of wisdom and moderation, should succeed Juxon, but that nobleman, unfortunately both for king and people, died about this very time. By some promotions, place was made for St. John, who was created Solicitor General. Hollis was to be made Secretary of State in the room of Windebank, who had fled. Pym, Chancellor of the Exchequer, in the, Chancellor of the Exchequer, in the room of Lord Cottingham, who had resigned. Lord Say, Master of the Wards, in the room of the same nobleman, the Earl of Essex, Governor, and Hamden, tutor to the Prince. What retarded the execution of these projected changes was the difficulty of satisfying all those who, from their activity and authority in Parliament, had pretensions for offices, and who still had it in their power to embarrass and distress the public measures. The associates too in popularity, whom the king intended to distinguish by his favour, were unwilling to undergo the reproach of having driven a separate bargain, and of sacrificing to their own ambitious views the cause of the nation. And as they were sensible that they must owe their preferment entirely to their weight and consideration in Parliament, they were most of them resolved still to adhere to that assembly, and both to promote its authority and preserve their own credit in it. On all occasions, they had no other advice to give the king than to allow himself to be directed by his great council, or, in other words, to resign himself passively to their guidance and government. As Charles found out, that instead of acquiring friends by the honours and offices which he should bestow, he should only arm his enemies with more power to hurt him. The end on which the king was most intent in changing ministers was to save the life of the Earl of Strafford, and to mollify, by these indulgences, the rage of his most furious prosecutors. But so high was that nobleman's reputation for experience and capacity, that all the new councillors and intended ministers plainly saw that if he escaped their vengeance, he must return into favour and authority, and they regarded his death as the only security which they could have, both for the establishment of their present power and for success in their future enterprises. His impeachment, therefore, was pushed on with the utmost vigour, and, after long and solemn preparations, was brought to a final issue. Immediately after Strafford was sequestered from Parliament and confined in the Tower, a committee of thirteen was chosen by the lower house, and entrusted with the office of preparing a charge against him. These, joined to a small committee of lords, were vested with the authority to examine all witnesses, to call for every paper, and to use any means of scrutiny, with regards to any part of the Earl's behaviour and conduct. After so general and unbounded an inquisition, 
exercised by such powerful and implacable enemies, a man must have been very cautious or very innocent not to afford, during the whole course of his life, some manner of accusation against him. The committee, by direction from both houses, took an oath of secrecy, a practice very unusual, and which gave them the appearance of conspirators more than ministers of justice. But the intention of the strictness was to render it more difficult for the Earl to elude their search, or prepare for his justification. Application was made to the, for the King, that he would allow this committee to examine privy councillors, with regard to opinions delivered at the board, a concession which Charles unwarily made, and which Thed's force banished all mutual confidence from the deliberations of council, where every man is supposed to have entire freedom, without fear of future punishment or inquiry, of proposing any expedient, questioning any opinion, or supporting any argument. Sir George Ratcliffe, the Earl's intimate friend and confidant, was accused of high treason, sent forth from Ireland, and committed to close custody. As no charge ever appeared or was prosecuted against him, it is impossible to give a more charitable interpretation to this measure than that the Commons thereby intended to deprive Strafford, in his present distress, of the assistance of his best friend, who was most enabled, by his testimony, to justify the innocence of his patron's conduct and behaviour. When intelligence arrived in Ireland of the plans laid for Strafford's ruin, the Irish House of Commons, though they had very lately bestowed ample praises on his administration, entered into all the violent counsels against him, and prepared a representation of the miserable state into which, by his misconduct, they supposed the kingdom to be fallen. They sent over a committee to London, to assist in the prosecution of the unfortunate governor, and by intimations from this committee, who entered into close confederacy with the popular leaders in England, was every measure of the Irish Parliament governed and directed. Impeachments, which were never prosecuted, were carried up against Sir Richard Bolton, the Chancellor, Sir Gerard Lowther, Chief Justice, and Bramhall, Bishop of Derry. This step, which was an exact counterpart to the proceedings in England, served also the same purpose. It deprived the King of the ministers whom he most trusted. It discouraged and terrified all the other ministers, and it prevented those persons who were best acquainted with Strafford's counsel from giving evidence in his favour before the English Parliament. End of section 19. Chapter 54, part 3. Recording by Matthew Calvin. Canberra, Australia.